Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. In 2022, the journalist Erica Hayasaki published Somewhere Sisters, a story of adoption, identity, and the meaning of family. It's a sensitive, thorough, beautifully rendered exploration of a very complicated multifamily, multinational story. At the heart of the book are sisters, identical twins born in Vietnam. One was adopted by a wealthy family in the U.S., one was raised in rural Vietnam. Eventually, they would be reunited. I talked to Hayasaki in front of an audience at the 2022 Portland Book Festival. You started um, this big project um, looking into the intersection of genes and the environment, a a long-standing question or debate. After you gave birth to twin boys, what were you most interested in learning first? Before it became this book, what was interesting you? Well, I think I've always had an interest in identity, whether it's, you know, my own mixed racial identity and the identity of, of um, my kids and how we move through the world. Um, and I've often written about science and identity as well. So it was kind of natural for me to have questions um, after I gave birth, but also even before uh, around you know nature versus nurture. Um, I think a lot of us wonder how much genes play a role, how much the environment plays a role. And I, as a journalist, I often just sort of have the ability to, to follow my curiosities and my interests. And so I, I had twins and I connected to a twin researcher in California who um, connected me to many twins around the country. And I, I wrote a story about twin science, but it was the launching point for what became a much more uh, complicated narrative about twins. Why were you drawn to the stories of these three sisters? We'll get, we'll hear a lot more about their fascinating, complicated connections, but what was it broadly that that made you realize there's more than a magazine piece here? This is going to take years of my life and be a a book. I didn't necessarily know how many years of my life it would take, but... (laughs) (laughs) Which is maybe a good thing. (laughs) I probably, yeah, it was probably a good thing because you jump into these things and um, I didn't realize we'd have a pandemic, and I was also, of course, raising my children uh, in the pandemic and teaching from home and doing all the things that everybody was doing. So it took a long time. Also, it was very complicated, and because um, I, you know, I started with this personal interest in twins and science and identity, but I was also interested in the identity of what it means to grow up Asian American in um, certain communities because my own because of my own experiences. I. Um, was also I was born in Illinois and I had some you know rough moments growing up as an Asian American child in Illinois and so the twins um, lived in Illinois when I met them and um, are Asian American and so I um, one it will two of this there's three sisters we can get to the complicated uh, <laughs> dynamics of the family but um, you know had ex- similar experiences so I wanted to explore that and that sort of just opened up, a much more complicated narrative that involved lots of family members, it involved traveling to Vietnam, it involved interviewing birth families, 
It involved really digging into the history of transnational intercountry adoption, transracial adoption, in addition to the research into science, nature, nurture, and epigenetics, for example. So it became much more than I than I initially even knew it would ever be. That was a really helpful roadmap for the hour of conversations going to follow. <laughs> so, um, so let's go back in time about two decades. How did two girls who are not biologically related, named Loan and Nu, did I pronounce Lan, their names? Loan yeah. and Nu. Loan and yeah. Nu. How did they end up in an orphanage in Vietnam? Loan and Nu uh, were not biologically related. So these two um, girls at the time uh, were living in this orphanage. Their mothers, both of whom I met, um, were unable to care for them at the time. They and you know they continued to struggle financially, and it really came down to um, being able to support children. So Lon had a twin, though. Uh, Lon had a biological twin um, who ended up being raised by her biological aunt and her aunt's partner. Um, they're in a same-sex marriage, and they lived in Vietnam in a village. And so you had two girls in the orphanage, New and Lon, and then you had Ha, who lived in a village, and they were all living their lives as children um, for the first couple of years, and then that changed. What were Lon and Nu's lives like in the orphanage? Um, well, so I was able to visit the orphanage, and they they don't have a lot of memories. They were two, three years old. Um, so the two of them, though, Lon and Nu, were quite close, according to all accounts. They uh, knew arrived on the day of um, Isabella's uh, recorded birth date. And Isabella, this, this is one of the Sorry, I'm sorry, yes, no, Lon. <laughs> that, that's, that's the name that she was now given I by her, her, as by Isabella, her yeah. ad adopted American yeah. parents. So, yes, so Lon's um, birthday. And the two Should of we just call her Isabella to make it simpler? She goes by Isabella okay. now, so that's her name okay. so that she goes by. But certainly the, the name um, when she was a child was Lon and knew, yeah, was her sister her non-biological sister. What was going on in Isabella and her identical twin sister's mom's life that she um, gave both of these twin daughters up? She um, had a disability and was unable to work and could not feed these children. I talked to her about you know, trying to um, feed them and uh, nurse them and she was so hungry herself and she talked about this not being able to even um, you know sustain two lives literally and, yeah and begging you know on the street for help with her twins um, and so this was a, a, you know a heartbreaking and incredibly difficult decision but um, she made this decision she brought both sisters these twins to this orphanage um, Lon was healthier and was taken in by this orphanage. Um, the other sister was not as healthy and ended up, um, you know, staying with uh, her birth mother for a bit and then eventually being um, adopted by her biological aunt and um, nursed back into health. Um, and she ended up living, you know, a very um, loving life in, in Vietnam with her adoptive mothers who um, were not her birth mother. 
you mentioned that you went to this orphanage as part of your reporting. Maybe this is an impossible question to answer, but do you have a sense for the 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 possibilities of the the two girls in the orphanages, what their lives might have been like if they hadn't been adopted? I think that is a question that comes up a lot, and it's certainly something that you wonder throughout this narrative. Um, I am also not seeking to answer that because I think it's an unknown, right? But it is something that you think about and wonder because certainly um, the birth mother loved her children and certainly the adoptive mothers in Vietnam, for example, also loved Ha. And the adoptive mothers in the U.S. who eventually bring Lana new and give them new names um, to the U.S., um, also love those children, right? And so they have very different lives. They all had love. They all are loved. Um, but how their lives would have turned out is complicated. It's a hard question. I've talked to a lot of adoptees for the research of this book, and I've been told that adoption doesn't necessarily give you a better life, but does give you a different life. And I think that's sometimes goes against some of the narratives that we've been come, been taught to understand or think about when it, we consider adoption, for example. But you um, might want to ask yourself, like, what is what does constitute a, a good life? And I think that those questions are raised in the book. Um, let's turn. I, I want to come back to those questions. Those those are questions that come up over and over in the book. But let's let's turn to the American family that ends up adopting um, the, the two girls um, who they, to whom they give the names Isabella and Olivia. Who are the Salaminis? So um, they live in, there's a whole chapter that lays out their, <laughs> their um, love story and uh, they live in a suburb at the time of Chicago in a very wealthy area. Um, uh, Mick, who's the father, was a banker. He worked as a banker, um, was quite successful. Um, Keely, the mother, she had been a homemaker. She'd done a lot of philanthropy and um, raised her own, their their children, biological children, um, uh, four of them at the time before they adopted. And, um, you know, they lived this life and, and one day decided to, to adopt. Um, we mentioned earlier that uh, the Salaminis, the adoptive parents, um, they changed the names of these two girls um, when they adopted them. Um, why is that, and how common is it? We're not talking. I mean, they were they were two years old, three years old. Um, I mean, they they had had lives at that point. People had they'd called each other those names. Everyone had. Um, it's a profound thing to change someone's name. Yeah, you know, it. it, it there is a moment in the book where. The adoptive mother, Keely, told me that um, she had considered not telling them that they're, in fact, Asian, American, or Vietnamese, um, which, which, you know, kind of made me pause, for sure, um, because the question then becomes, how could you not tell your children that, you're, that they're Vietnamese um, if they're being raised in a, in a community that's all white and they will certainly come to have these questions about their identity. That changed um, for her, but but I think um, it was part of this idea, um, 
you know, I can personally, my father is an immigrant from Japan who never taught us Japanese. And um, while he holds on to his culture very closely, there was this push to assimilate. And I think that that is something that occurred in this situation too. Well, what were Olivia and Isabella's early years like before they got, say, to uh, to high school? Um, before they got to high school, they had, uh, the way they describe it, a very fun life. <laughs> lots of playing, lots of ripping heads off of Barbie dolls, for example. Uh, you know, they had a princess bedroom. They were, they, their mother dressed them alike, which they did not love. And they, and they were not twins. They were not biological twins. They were not biological sisters. They were both adopted from Vietnam, but yet they were raised as if they were twins. And they quickly discarded that as soon as they became old enough to have a say in it. And they're Um, very different in so many ways. Incredibly different to this day. Um, yeah. Actually, can, can you describe their differences? Um, the in, in non-biological of, sisters? Yeah, in terms of personality and, and inclinations. I mean, um, you know, I think Isabella, I've come to know her as this really um, self-aware, smart young woman who understands all the complexities within her story and um, and is working through them all. Um, Olivia and, and Isabella has connected to her birth family and her, obviously her twin sister, um, and is, you know, curious about, uh, moving around the world, for example, and, and, uh, interested in politics and, um, studying internationally. Uh, her sister, Olivia, is really has always been into sports. Is not interested in making these connections to birth family right now, um, and that was what she stated pretty explicitly to me in, in the book. Um, uh, they just had very different takes on everything, and so it's certainly not twins <laughs> by any means. Um, let's go back to Vietnam and, and hear a little bit more about Isabella's identical twin sister Ha. Because you mentioned that, that Isabella and Olivia, they, they had a, a pretty wealthy, upper-middle-class, suburban yeah. Chicago life. They had Barbies they could chop the heads off. They had all the toys um, they could want in an American childhood. What was Ha's childhood like? Yeah, I should also say they went to a Catholic high school. They were raised Catholic. Ha was raised Buddhist. Um, she... Um, lived in a village that uh, did not have um, electricity turned on all the time. Um, They did not have necessarily the access to um, a lot of the things like, you know, washing machines, for example. And she would wash, they would wash their clothes in the river. She would play, she didn't have toys. She played with the dust and she was quite happy playing with the dust. She had a swing that was built under, uh, hanging from some trees in the woods and she would swing under, um, like swing under the moon. And she describes it quite beautifully, actually. She would pretend that the leaves were um, dollar bills, or not dollar bills, but were money. And uh, and she would, you know, have her own play cafes and um, her family loved her and it was just a totally different life, but also full of love. So That's one of the... 
I mean, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but it's still worth underlining just how, how happy her childhood was, how different it was, but how, how full of everything that a young person needed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she never knew that she was poor. So she says that. She never knew that because she never went without food because there was always food from the land, you know, and her, her family would find a way to feed her. Um, there were storms that sometimes wiped away even their house, and they had to rebuild, and they would learn to rebuild. Um, she knew she had a twin. She knew she didn't exactly know what that meant. How old was she when she learned that? So when she was fo- four... Her mothers put her on a motorbike and said, we're going to go meet your twin. We're going to the orphanage. And she remembered that ride. She remembered getting there, and so did her mothers. And she remembered that her twin was not there. She had recently been adopted to America. And that was that. And um, she did have a moment where she was in her village watching airplanes go over, not really knowing what the airplanes carried or how they carried people, and asking an airplane to bring her sister. But other than that, she lived her life happily and didn't have these desires to go to America. She didn't know what America was. She didn't know what that would mean. Um, She knew that she was happy where she was. And she was also happy being an only child. She liked being the center. She said that, you know. (laughs) I mean, this is all quoted in the book, but she talked about that a lot. Like, I just, I was fine. It wasn't the twin story where you felt like, a part of me is missing my whole life. That was not the way they ever described it. And I appreciated that because that's often how twins are depicted when they're apart and then reunited. Like a oh, half of me was missing and now I've found it and life will be perfect after this. Um, you mentioned that so she, she was being raised, she was raised by um, her biological mother's sister and, and that sister's partner. It was a same-sex relationship yeah. uh, in a rural village in Vietnam. How common was that? And, and, and how much um, animosity did her mother's receive? It was not common and certainly have felt that she was bullied um, because, because of, of her that. mother's, because of that, and because she was told that she was a child that her whose own parents didn't that gave her away. Mm-hmm. So she was also adopted in a very different situation in Vietnam, and also grappling with the complexities of adoption and how other people perceived her. Um, and the the women who raised her, um, you know, they had a moment in the book. They have a, a very beautiful love story where they run away together and and you know at one one had tried to marry a man at one point and it was not for them and decided you know we're not going to do that again we're, <laughs> and we're going to try to have an adopt a child and then along came her sister's child who her sister could not raise you know um and and that was how that worked out for them and they loved this child and raised or as their own to this day, yeah. So let's go back to um, to the Salaminis, Keely Salamini, the the mom of Olivia and uh, and Isabella. When did she find out that the older girl that she had adopted actually had an identical biological twin back in Vietnam? And what did she do when she learned that? So in the book. The, the Olivia now if Olivia and Isabella are now in the U.S. and 
Keely in her mind had said, I'm not going back to Vietnam. They're American citizens. I'm going to raise them no different from my kids. We're not going back. I won't even tell them that they're Asian. Um, and, and comes across uh, some paperwork, all the paperwork, and there's a line in there about twin birth, and it piques her interest, uh, and she calls the agency. They say that... Um, they don't know much about it. She just goes on this whole journey over for that lasts many years to try to figure out, is there a twin? And if so, then I should bring her back. That was her, her saying. I should bring her here. She really, the, the way I read it, she seems like, I mean, she's a, a kind of force of nature to, to begin with. Um, but she, it's I got the sense that she was obsessed with this, that she went to great lengths over years and when great expense as well to create this, this reunion. What was driving her? Her, the way that she puts it in the book is that she felt as many of us under, like think about twins being separated. That sounds to be not okay and that twins should be together. So that was the way she puts it. She felt like they should be together. And, and the way to accomplish that would be to, to bring the sister that was in Vietnam somehow to her. In her mind. Yeah. Yeah. That was the thinking. Um, and, you know, it involved blocking out any acknowledgement of birth mothers, adoptive mothers in Vietnam that could exist other family members um a lot of even what she had to do to go through with the adoption in her mind um what she says in the book is having a moment of asking can she do this what is she doing and then having to personally block out all these other realities to move forward with this plan um that she want put into motion yeah Let's pause with the where the, these families are before the um, reunions uh, to get a little bit of history that you delve into in the book, which is really important and fascinating about transnational adoptions um, more broadly. Starting with the, the fact that you note that orphanages, as we think of them now, they, they didn't always exist in Vietnam. When did they appear? So oftentimes orphanages were looked at as feeding centers, um, especially after, um, for example, uh, the war and during the war in Vietnam, there were children who were sometimes endangered or, you know, their parents were not able to feed them. Actually, the, the war into, that we in the U.S. Yes, call the, the Vietnam US, War. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I think I call the book The American War. Um, so trying to show the different perspectives. Mm -hmm. But... Um, um, yeah, so parents would sometimes take their children there to be housed temporarily uh, with the feeling that they would come back when they could care for them. And, um, and what happens after the war, um, you know, uh, the U.S. sent planes to, um, in, their, in the language that was used, to rescue um, orphans that... Uh, from Vietnam after the war um, and bring them to the U.S. to be raised by American families. Um, and this became a massive effort uh, known as Operation Baby Lift. Um, one of those planes crashed and many children died. 
Um, and also I had the chance to interview um, children who'd grown up, who are adults now, who had lived through this, who had never been able to trace their f biological family members. Paperwork was lost. Some children were not orphans. Um, some mothers came to the U.S. seeking to find their biological children who had been adopted into American families. Um, it's a very painful part of history. It shapes, I think, um, also though the way adoption has been um, perceived, I think, transnationally, often as a kind of rescue effort. Saviors coming in. Right. Um, it, if we add in Korea to this, what do you see as the connections between wars, and in particular that the U.S. fights in, and transnational adoptions? Yeah, the, the theme that runs through the history with many of the adoption projects launched, um, again, is this sense of maybe guilt, mm -hmm. guilt over involvement in the war on behalf of people who are in the U.S., for example, um, also the savior mentality, um, this kind of altruistic idea that we will put kids in a better life they're playing in dust there, and, and we have Barbies. Yeah. Not, not to simplify it, but, but, and we have love, but, but, but the, the poverty that we see from American eyes, um, it's, even that is something that, that we can fix. Yeah, and you know, when, you talked, when I've talked to adoptees, for example, who, um, who have grown up after the war, for example, and were adopted by Western families, um, they talked also about like growing up and being terrified of the idea, the very idea of Vietnam, of, of thinking of um, women and their mothers as prostitutes or as, you know, um, just in a certain light that's very stereotypical of a war-torn place that was, you know, just a really awful place. And that was the way they thought because they didn't know any other narrative um, and had to unlearn that as adults. What did you hear from experts about the the psychological effects of getting that message of being taught or told that the place you'd come from was a scary bad place that it's 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 a good thing we've taken you out of there the psychological message um again from i, I interviewed also adoptees who are now psychologists transracial transnational adoptees um and people who specialize in this. And um, there is a moment that many told me about, which is the language within the adoptee community is coming out of the fog. Um, but it's this idea of one day kind of waking up to these realities when you've been in this sort of, you've lived your life in a, with the fairy tale narrative ingrained, but always understanding it's not quite that at all, maybe, because of the painful issues around identity formation, um, separation trauma, um, all the different complications that come in to um, adoption and f growing up as an adoptee. And then as you start to learn these different realities or meet other people, travel, understand the history, um, this, uh, the history of adoption, for example, um, you start to look at it and it's all of its multidimensionality and clarity and, and for some the way they described it as being able to breathe a bit, uh, especially when they're 
connecting to other adoptees who've gone through this. I'm like, oh, like, no wonder I am encountering these contradictions within my, my story, my experience, and myself, and having to find a way to embrace those contradictions and to move forward to, and be okay and not, be, not live in this sort of black or white reality because it's not that. That's the author Erica Hayasaki in conversation about her book, Somewhere Sisters. We'll have more after a short break. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. If you're just tuning in, we're listening today to my conversation with the journalist Erica Hayasaki. We talked about her book, Somewhere Sisters, at the 2022 Portland Book Festival. At the heart of the book are identical twin sisters, Ha, who was raised by family members in her native Vietnam, and Isabella, who was adopted by a white family in the U.S. At one point, I asked Hayasaki what it was like for Isabella to meet her biological family and twin sister back in Vietnam. I will say it was not the reunion you've seen on Good Morning America. (laughs) It was incredibly anxiety-inducing, um, you know, just this moment that they're sort of thrown into, um, and it opens up again, all, an introduction to all these other family members. And so, um, it was not, here's my other half and now my life is finally, um, given this meaning because I've been missing this piece of me. It was not this instant bond because we're twins. We understand each other. We have a hundred, the same genes. We're identical twins. Now we know each other. It's not any of that. It took, they didn't speak the same language. You know, they couldn't communicate. They'd grown up incredibly different. Um, and so it was, in many ways, it's, it's, it's difficult to read that reunion. Yeah. And, and certainly it was difficult to, to reconstruct because people might be rooting for the, the reunion they see on TV and it, and it turns out to be different. As, um, as tough as that one was, as challenging, in some ways Olivia's, which was virtual, is is shorter and even more painful to read at least yeah can you describe the circumstances of when she saw her family for the for her biological family for the first time so isabella had been brought to the, to vietnam at 13 to reunite with her twin um that was the whole plan olivia's family um got word that that this family was coming and they thought olivia would be there too and so her birth mom, who cannot speak and um, cannot hear, um, and she showed up with all the family, we, and they were devastated because Olivia was not there. And it's a really hard moment in the book because also you'll come to find through the book that Olivia's grandmother um, had been going to the orphanage regularly to visit her granddaughter. And one day she showed up and she wasn't there. And she um, would write letters. She found the address for the Salmini family and wrote letters asking to see her granddaughter again. And when Keeley got there with uh, Isabella and Ha and this whole reunion was happening, um, the other family shows up and she's looking for the grandmother and the grandmother had died. She never got to see her again. And so I think... So then they felt incredibly guilty and said, we need to get Olivia on the phone now. We need to get her on the FaceTime. And they FaceTimed, and that was her reunion. Um, In the middle of the night, she was woken up at 13 years old and said, here's your family in Vietnam. And I think 
again, this is not a fairy tale, you know, and there's nothing easy about that. Hmm. Eventually, ha- does come, she starts to learn English, um, lessons paid for um, by her identical sister's adoptive family in the U.S. And eventually, through their efforts, she's able to get a student visa and to come to live with the Salaminis and to study in the U.S. What was it like for Isabella and Hat to forge a relationship? It did not come naturally. I think that from in the book, Ha comes in a time when Isabella is struggling with a lot of bullying, and um, she had actually stopped. She had decided to homeschool. It was that hard for her, and she she wasn't ready to have a whole new person in her life and taking care of her in America. You know, she did. They didn't. You know, again, the language and everything was new. Food, everything, and she was with her, right? Um, and I think that that took a long time for them to to connect. But when they finally did, it was over these experiences they began to talk about, look, my life has not always been so easy. You know, there have been these moments of bullying that have been really hard and, and certain moments. And I think they, they spent one night really talking honestly about these things. And that after that, their relationship started to change. It's really dramatic that, um, what draws them together is their willingness to talk about something they shared, which is not necessarily or not really not at all tied to being twins. It's not tied to um, having the, the same genes. It's tied to the fact that they were separated and made to feel bad in various ways mm-hmm. by their adoptions. They're, they're different kinds of adoptions. It, it's a striking yeah. Um, realization. This is this is after you um, outline various twin studies that find these extraordinary convergences in in people's lives who are raised separately. Yeah. But it's not. This is not because they're twins. Right. No. No. And you know they share the same genes, but they're incredibly unique. Um, they are their own distinct individuals, just as my own twins are. How much did? Um, as you mentioned at the beginning, it was after you um, gave birth to twins that you spent some time to look into the, 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 the latest iterations of the nature versus nurture debate. As you were working on this book and reporting, how much did being a mother of twins yourself impact the way you thought about this story? I think it impacted because, you know, my twins have been in the same environment forever they're they're they haven't really gone a day apart um and these twins have been raised on opposite sides of the world and they share identical genes and throughout history um, scientists have studied genes to to try to understand how much of our intellect and our behavior and our traits come from our genetics and that has led us down some really ugly routes um like eugenics for example um uh so there's been some ugly twin studies through, you know, Nazi Germany, twins separated and experimented on and tortured. Um, it's not pretty. And so there has been this push toward genes mattering so much. And then there have been also some disturbing experiments throughout history with behaviorism and environment, um, this idea that environment matters more than anything else. Take any child and I will shape them to be whoever I want with them to With deprivation be. or whatever. Yes. Um, 
both of these polar extremes um, uh, are, 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 are too far. They're, they're not correct because what we understand, what I understand now is that um, there's this interplay between the environment genes um, and the whole field of epigenetics is um, uh, there. There's many studies around uh, how much your environment can impact your genes, turn on certain genes, switch off certain genes. And um, there's also the randomness of chance that happens um, uh, within your own genes, mutations, differences within identical twin genes. All of these things are at play. It's so much more complicated than black or white. And so um, the reality of identity, even with identity of twins living together, is they have different environments even within that home that they've, that they've carved out over time within the womb, and they, um, that shapes who they become. And so it, it just really hit home for me um, through all of this research how much um, that complexity, it's like this dance between your environment and your genes and nature and nurture and, um, and how sometimes we're so forced to think about one or the other, but again, it's like embracing these contradictions that are harder, but actually there's more truth in them. What was it like for Olivia, Isabella's younger sister, um, when her sister and her sister's identical twin started actually forging a relationship? For um, Olivia? For, for Olivia. Yeah. I think that that was hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I know. I, it's not just I think. I reported that in the book. <laughs> Everything I'm saying is reported in the book. Um, it was hard. They had been raised like twins. They were close. They went through rough patches, and it was not just hard, um, according to her in the book, uh, because she felt like here's this other person who's come in, and also Olivia had to take care of how she felt because she um, had to take her to the schools and help her get around. Um, but it was a reminder to her as well that she also had this biological family in Vietnam. And, and that was something that she did not feel she wanted to engage with at that time. So um, it became also kind of hard in that area for her. This inescapable reminder right. of, of this this other family. Yeah. Yeah, hmm. that she had been introduced to originally over FaceTime and then in person and she said to me very clearly, I have one family I cannot handle, two. I want to turn or end with the, your very first page, your dedication, because it's unusual. Um, it's not just dedicated to people, but to an idea. You write this, to my grandmothers who survived within me, to my mother and daughter who sustain me, and to understanding that we all try to do right with what we have and know. What's behind that dedication? I think that that is, you know, that's obviously a dedication to my family, but also to the mothers and the grandmothers in the book who, you know, were, um, as a mother myself, we're all trying to do the best we can with what we have and know. We, we grow up in our certain areas. We have blind spots all of us, and we also have um, different situations where we might not have access to the knowledge of somebody else. And so the reason this book, for example, is written from different points of view, I dive into different points of view, is because one person on this side of the world is not necessarily living their life seeing it the way the other person on the other side of the world is seeing it. They're living it the way that they can with what they 
have and know. Nobody here is a necessarily a villain or a hero. They're just, um, you know, mothers trying to do their best. And sometimes your best, um, maybe you look back and you think, oh, well, things could have been done differently or I could have done this differently. I didn't know this now. I know this now, but I didn't know this then. Um, and I think that's important to, to acknowledge. Erica Hayasaki, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> that's Erica Hayasaki in conversation about her book, Somewhere Sisters, at the 2022 Portland Book Festival. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford. <laughs>